Hello, welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. This show is supported by donations from listeners like yourself. If you feel like you can support us, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Kari underscore Filer, and you can help me out that way. And let's keep it going. In today's episode, I'm talking with my old boss and mentor and friend, Stan Mayer. We discuss the importance of hustle, honesty, financial responsibility, financial literacy, woke America, reparations, the 13th Amendment, basic income, the philosophy of retirement, the pitfalls and benefits of Chinese communist culture, the Second Amendment, racial self-awareness, the importance of self-improvement, and the challenges of entrepreneurship. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, I know you very well uh, as an as an honorable man and mentor and citizen here in Southern Cali, but why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, I was born in Long Beach. I was born in Long Beach, mm. California. Born and raised. As a matter of fact, um, I still own my childhood home that I moved in to at five years old. Mm. Wow, that's terrific. And And it is in the shadows of Cal State Long Beach, so when I was uh, young and going to school, I walked to elementary school, I walked to junior high, I walked to my high school, and I rode my bike to Cal State Long Beach. And you, what did you study there, uh, Long Beach? Uh, I started out as an industrial arts major. And uh, what it was, when I left high school, I worked in the print shop. And uh, I did everything from, oh, uh, um, Soap screening, um, I worked uh, publishing the newspaper by producing it on the press. Uh, I set type, uh, uh, we did um, uh, offset printing, uh, which was the, on the early days of, uh, of the print shops that we have now. But I used to run a press, and um, uh, before I graduated, I worked uh, some side jobs as uh, a an apprentice printer and learn the skills and so right after high school i formed my own little company called mayor graphics and what i would do is uh, uh do offset printing and stuff for all things like lonnie sports and and the queen mary uh when they first got there i would do mm. their their uh, um uh, uh wedding invitations and things like that i would do their um their menus and uh some other little companies um that i would do do some work for so when i went to cal state long beach my first interest was to uh continue that skill set but as i got in and went along further they I, i realized that they wanted me to be a teacher as opposed to a um, a business person. Hmm. Well, I had no interest in really being a teacher. I wanted to learn how to run a business. So as time went on and, uh, uh after joining my fraternity, which kind of, uh, headlined me a little bit, which took a lot of my time. Um, I just kind of wandered in the woods and did all sorts of different things. And one of the areas that I had, um, most of my classes in was in speech communications because uh, it was easy for me. Mm. And um, 
So uh, that went on for a while. And then as time went on and taking, you know, so many units of racquetball and, and uh, a lot of home met classes and stuff, because I always followed the girls. Um, I went to my counselor and I said, uh, so what do I do to get out of here? And uh, he looked at all my credits and stuff like this. And, and he said, well, you got most units in, in speech communications. So why don't you become a speech major? Hmm. I said, okay, fine. What does that take? And I said, he said, well, you got to take this class, this class, and this class. Well, wait a minute. You know, I already got almost all the units I need. Hmm. He says, yeah, but because you didn't declare, you have to go on the current schedule for that degree as opposed to the original schedule when I first signed up at Cal State Long Beach. So it set, that set me back a little bit because I had been kind of ignoring where I was going. And uh, so it took me a little longer to graduate than, than normal. And uh, so uh, that's what I ended up doing because um, it was easy, came natural to me. And, and so uh, it didn't really, it didn't really do anything for me hmm. um, professional per se until in hindsight, I got into sales. And because of that, the speech communications, obviously uh, that skill set was beneficial. But nobody's ever asked to see my degree. Nobody's ever asked me what my degree was in. It was mm. just, you know, okay, I got the shingle on the wall. You know, I was an Eagle Scout too, or am an Eagle Scout. And so I got, you know, that accomplishment. I, it was one of those kind of things I never quit. And so I, we finally went through that process. It sounds and to during, me like you had a an ability. I don't know if this ability was innate or if you learned it. How to network. You mentioned that you were 18 before you had even gone to school and had any sort of training. You had already made connections in downtown Long Beach with the Queen Mary and other businesses. How did you do that how did you know to do that to or or did you have were you making connections via third parties whether somebody's kind of doing the sales for you or was it just you legging it around downtown uh sometimes it was word of mouth mostly it was just hustle hmm. uh you know i'd go down to the los altos shopping center and would go door to door and ask them about printing their flyers and things like that and that's how i got like lonnie's sporting goods and things like this they were having a a winter sale and they said, uh, okay, because this was back in the day before Kinko's, before, you know, any of those places that you could get any Xeroxing done because Xeroxes hadn't been invented yet. Mm. And so, uh, you know, going to print shops, they were kind of few and far between. And uh, so that's kind of how that started. And so I just picked up gigs. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the only problem that I had in the early days is that my printing press that I bought uh, – uh, we put it out in the in the laundry room at the house, and my dark room was in the the bedroom that my brother vacated to go to Cal State Humboldt. Mm. So uh, I took aluminum foil and put it all over the windows and put my uh, my camera and stuff and did all my my plate making and stuff like this in the house. So uh, my mom and dad were very tolerant of that uh, because I wasn't lazy about anything. I was you know scrambling for business and stuff like that. Were and, you uh, always, were you more industrious than the average member of your family or were, or was that kind of the, the status quo for your family to be, to be that industrious? Well, um, my dad was for sure. Hmm. Um, 
when he came uh, came back here after the war, I went, was in the Navy, was in uh, Japan for the occupation. And uh, he started working for the telephone company. And uh, he would climb poles and and uh, you know go in the in the vaults. He was in the outside plant construction, and uh, he never went to college, uh, but he was very good with his hands. Uh, you know, he did all sorts of different things and and kind of hustled. Always kind of promoted promoted me in that way, and and I I kind of had a, uh, a skill set for that, I suppose. My brother, on the other hand, he was into hunting and fishing and natural resources and mm. stuff. So. When he went to, uh, to Humboldt State, uh, he graduated in natural resources and, and got his degree in that, in that respect. So um, uh, my, I was more, I'm kind of a hands-on mechanical kind of person. I try to figure things out. I, I'm not an engineer, but I, I fancy myself as a, an application engineer. Mm. And if there's a problem, I'll try to find a way to solve it. Well, and that's uh, something that I, that's definitely what something I've learned from you. Uh, if, if there's, you know, I carry myself today with a bit of industriousness, uh, and that's partly due to what I learned from you. When I saw you work, it was always one of face to face relationships, meaningful interactions, uh, that were taken seriously behind closed doors. Uh, I feel like in our culture, uh, today and, maybe in the 90s and you can probably attest more to when this pivot happened it's been true my entire life there are a lot of people that do this face-to-face interaction but uh and it seems genuine but then but then behind closed doors it's cut corners cut costs it's all about reputation and so the substance of businesses uh i've seen just erode into the eventually become the Google and Facebook profit models, which are you know, smile in your face and extract all your value. Uh, but your business has never had that. You're never had that aspect. Uh, everything about uh, Featherstone was genuine. And so it seems like you got that from your dad. Uh, yeah, very much so. And, and, you know, being in the scouts and stuff, my, my mom and dad were very, were very hands-on hmm. and uh, you know, we, we, we live by the, the rule that if you, uh, you tell the truth, you've got nothing to remember. So, uh, and I, and I find that, that now there's a lot of people that are very disingenuous. There's a lot of businesses out there that are gaming the system and gaming the customers and, and selling stuff that they don't need and what have you. And I would be a much richer man had I, you know, taken that route. Mm. But, uh, I would constantly go and tell the, the schools, no, you don't need that. We could do it this way mm. and we can save a lot of money. Mm. And, uh, so I got I got a lot of, 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 of customers and, and a lot of loyalty. Uh, quite frankly, I can honestly tell you that I've never had an unpaid invoice. Mm. So uh, you know, from that standpoint, everybody uh, I did what I said I was going to do, and everybody uh, you know got what they paid for. And I was never the most expensive guy in the uh, in the fray. And so that's just kind of the way I you know I work my life, and I'm still doing that today. Um, but, uh, one of the things, you know, they'll have a problem and a company will come with a proposal that you need to, you know, do X, Y, Z, and it's going to cost you, you know, thousands of dollars. And I said, well, I can do the same thing with, for half the cost Mm. using a different type of technology and you'll get the same result at the other end of the wire Mm. either way. So you want to spend a little, you want to spend a lot. And uh, I, I'll give you, for instance, there is a, 
device that I call my magic box. And it is a VDSL uh, circuit box. And it runs off of old telephone wires, you know, Cat 2 stuff, old junk. Uh, matter of fact, I've got it working right now all throughout a lot of the schools at South Whittier and Los Nietos that they didn't have any infrastructure for data. Hmm. And I, I take an old pair of phone wires, go into the room, hook it up, and the thing just works. And uh, you got to know how to how to hook it up. You got to you got to you know figure that out. And I, it was pretty simple to to make that arrangement. But nobody else sells that that kind of solution. But it's it's perfect. They use it a lot in hotels and things like that. But none of the big dogs, none of the other companies, can make money doing that kind of stuff. Hmm. They don't, they're not interested in those kind of solutions. They want to sell you fiber optics. They want to pull cable. They want to do all sorts of stuff that may not be necessary. Yeah, I tell you the the our if our culture ultimately erodes and a lot of people are are on that that page, I think I'm I think I'm on the page that we're going to go down a bit further before we change our trajectory and start moving upwards again. Uh I can personally, I would put a lot of weight on the profit motive uh and the the honor with which we regard the profit motive. The profit motive to me, needs to be a an outcome of something honorable, not something on to be honored in itself. So, to me, the profit—if you're going to make a profit as a business—I like Elon Musk's model. So, Elon Musk says, "Let me first create a product or service that is valued as a valuable product or service by the person who buys it. Let me let let me be helpful first. That's the primary directive, and then." If the product or, and that I create is indeed valuable, many people will adopt it, and I'll make lots of money. Uh, as opposed oh, to the, yeah, a a absolutely. And one of the things too, I'll give you another uh, another example. Um, a school wanted to have their wiring done and and what have you, and and one of the administrators had gone to a seminar and said, "Well, this is back in the early days." Well, we need to we need to have fiber everywhere, hmm. and I and I asked him why, and he said, "Well, because it's the newest, latest, greatest thing." I said, "Do you have any devices that work on fiber directly? Do you have a computer that has a fiber optic connection?" He said, "No," and I said, "He said, but it's faster," and I said, "No, it isn't," and I can I can tell you why. And I said, <clears throat> "How fast is light? It's the speed of light." Mm -hmm. How fast is electricity? The speed of light. I said, so I've got a computer that is um, electronic, comes out of the back with a plug, right? And I take that plug and I put it into a fiber optic box and I go over fiber optic cable to the other end that goes into another box that turns it into copper. So now I go from electricity to light back to electricity. Mm-hmm. There is, there is a latency in there, and I can, I can uh, empirically show you that I can get from point A to point B faster over copper direct because I don't have to make that conversion. Mm. And they've got this, this dumbfounded look on their face. And I said, the only thing with fiber, it doesn't go faster. It just goes further. Mm. So when we did all these Ethernet cable drops and stuff like that, you could go up to 330 feet. Fiber, you can go up to 1,500 feet. Okay, mm. well, unless you have a run that's 1,500 feet, you don't need a fiber link 200 feet long. 
doesn't make any sense. That it's not cost effective. Mm. And you make have to buy all this electronics. Now you have more points of failure and things like that. So these are the kind of the practical things I try to uh, uh, to let people know. And and a lot of it has been you know just you know researching stuff to see. I, I'm not in it. Wasn't really in it to to profit as much as I I was in it to be an applications engineer and find a solution to a problem. And I would I I told him I says I would like you to to buy something that I would buy myself. And that's the way I always presented stuff. He says, I'm not going to sell you anything that I wouldn't put in myself. And, um, you know, other people, they, it's whatever's in the, whatever's in the, um, in their sales brochures, what they, what they pawn. Another example, when I worked for General Telephone, I was a senior account executive out in Palm Springs okay. and I sold phone and I sold phone systems. And um, I would go to to a customer, and um, they had a, a problem, and I would solve it. Because when I go back to my engineer, I'd say, "Okay, they have these things called an off-premise extension. So I've got a main building, and then I've got a a, a remote building still still on the same contiguous property, and uh, they want to put an extension out there. Mm. Well, the only way to get there, right, is to um, uh, to go through the central office and make them an extension of the central office and cost them on a monthly basis for that extension. And I said, let me think about this. So I went back to my, my engineer and I said, if we ran it over a dry cable pair on an old pair of wires that are in between the two buildings, I said, can't we just run an extension off the... Off the uh, the main unit and he said well sure nothing to stop us from doing that so we did it and it worked uh, another example um, with phones when I was working out in Palm Springs Palm Desert uh, we didn't have a, um, a hotel motel system and so I was trying to sell put a square peg in a round hole hmm. I had to sell a business system to uh, a hotel or a country club uh, that that uh, I didn't have, and but they needed to have a uh, a wake up light hmm. or a message light rather, and so um, I went to my engineer. And I says, "How do we get around this?" He says, "Well, oh, we're going to have to use a different kind of system and stuff." And I said, "Well, wait a minute. Don't we have something in the system called executive reminder?" And he said, "Yeah." Because what the executive reminder did is that the operator could put in a reminder and it would send a signal to the person's desk. And from that, the telephone could pick up that electronic signal and light a light. Mm -hmm. So um, it was an application that they had never thought about. It was never in the book. So I figured a way to sell these business systems as hotel motel systems when I didn't have one. So it was these kind of things that I, I guess maybe I try to think out of the box a little bit more. Uh, but most of the time, I, when I think out of the box, I think about it from an economic standpoint as well and say, what's the least expensive way of doing, get, uh, getting the same result? See, I think the place you come from 
is the polar opposite of so many entrepreneurs today because you come first from a place of trying to save your client money. <laughs> I feel like so many businesses today, the first place they come from is how do I extract money from this person? What do I need to do to get you to part with your dollars, right? Is is the ethos that's so popular and not criticized nearly, nearly enough. And, you know, let me hear completely criticize and, and denounce that ethos. You shouldn't come to an issue first of how can I be extractive of dollars? How can I just make the most money first? Uh, you know, Gordon Gecko has done a number on our culture. Uh, how were you when you when you heard Gordon Gecko announce that greed is good? And then you must have seen that wave uh, come over your industry. You were already a working professional. Well, sure. And, and, and I really kind of enjoyed that movie. I understood. And I understood, uh, you know, Gordon's uh, philosophy. Um, but on the, on the flip side, he was doing a lot of his stuff at the expense of the common man hmm. and the worker and the workers. And that was where the, really the kind of the rub in, rub was. And the, the, uh, so that kind of greed, um, is, is a problem when you're taking advantage of someone. But the fact that greed is good, I mean, if, uh, if that's inspires people to make money and, um, you know, greed can be taken uh, in a in a couple of ways. You you can either, either be Scrooge McDuck, or you can make money like a, um, like Berkshire Hathaway, mm -hmm. you know, companies and and give your money away. Mm -hmm. But you know, being you know uh, having a lot of money is not a it's not a sin. Not at all. It really not is. at all. I wish more people would would make sure that we're always joining immense profit with immense help. And so one one example that I like to use is Amazon. The reason Amazon is the greatest company uh, in recent history, one of the greatest companies in recent history is because they provide amazing customer service. Uh, you can click a button and get your toilet paper at your door in two hours. And then if the toilet paper doesn't show up, you can make a call on a Sunday afternoon, talk to a live person that speaks English and have it replaced tomorrow morning. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, the the right. customer service is amazing. And so when yeah, exactly. Amazon was, when we were choosing as customers, when we had an option of eBay or Amazon, we chose Amazon. When we had an option of Barnes and Nobles or Amazon, we chose Amazon. So that's why they are as high as they are because they provide amazing service. Uh, and they're always helpful. And so I guess part of my my gripe with our culture is something like Boeing. I think Boeing is being propped today. Are they what are they really providing amazing service? I don't know. I, I can't tell you the last time I interacted with with Boeing, uh, you know, through the airlines, obviously. But, you know, the airlines interact with Boeing. Uh, so I don't know. Is that is it genuine? Do people throw around crony capitalism. What do you think of that phrase? What, what's your take on? the concept of crony capitalism uh, being thrown around. Is that applicable? Is it not applicable? Well, you know, it all depends. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to take your, your, your theory a little one step further. Hmm. Uh, you know, I don't think it's not necessarily, you know, good, uh, good service. It's good customer service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's taking care of the customers after it's purchased. How many times have you bought anything off the net from, from a non Amazon or a non Walmart or a non-Sam's Club, or a, a non-Costco, and had had either problems returning something, getting satisfaction, <clears throat> or not being able to get in touch with anybody at all. Oh yeah, that's what that's what irks me the most. Mm -hmm. 
And so, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, Amazon was a failed uh, business model. So is Federal Express. It's a failed business model. Uh, and everybody was, everybody told them. Matter of fact, the, the guy that invented uh, FedEx uh, got an F hmm. on his business because he said, you know, you're not going to have a central hub in, in, the, in Midwest and distribute. Nobody's going to do that. Hmm. And uh, it was the smartest thing that ever happened. But everybody, you know, they have a lot of naysayers. And, you know, people, you know, you know go with regard to that. But the, the crony capitalism stuff, yeah, there's a lot of insider trading. There's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of sharks and, and, and not nice people out there. They're not, they're not admirable. They were never Boy Scouts. I can guarantee you. Um, so uh, there's a, and that's stuff you got to kind of watch out for because they don't really give a flip about you. Mm. Uh, you give you an ex- example just recently with, with Robinhood and Reddit. Mm. Everybody thought that Robinhood was, you know from the rich and give to the poor yeah it was actually the opposite yeah they hoodwinked everybody they lied to everybody and the little guy got hurt the billionaires made a bundle yep and and so how they're still in business is beyond me and but they, they do it i mean and that and that's that's part of sometimes when you're getting back to the gordon gecko kind of scenario there's a lot of sharks out there that will do that because they don't give a flip about the customer they only give uh, uh, their effort towards getting the green and taking it from as many people as they possibly can. Yeah, yeah. I was actually part of that Robinhood uh, fiasco. Uh, I'm on Robinhood. Robinhood is my brokerage uh, at the moment. And so I was trading. I, now I was never, and I'm all Wall Street bets. Um, I was never YOLO like these guys. These guys were taking tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars and buying GameStop calls <laughs> with their entire savings. Oh yeah, oh uh, sure, yeah. They were they, yeah. they were gaming the system. Well, I mean, they For were sure. they were taking a huge risk, right? They're they're buying a call, which is I mean, that call can expire worthless, man. Uh, you can lose all your money. Uh, as a matter of fact, you're almost guaranteed to lose all your money if if. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if, if it's not if the stock hasn't gone above your price at the end of the day. And so what I did was I sold some puts. Uh, and so I made more money than I otherwise would have because of the rising GameStop. But I didn't risk my savings. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do hold a share of GameStop. Exactly one. Just to say that I participated. Uh, I bought it 300. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, but, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I lost a couple, what, 250 bucks on GameStop. Uh, yeah. You know, but not as bad as a lot of Redditors that lost many, many tens of thousands. Some some even millions. Um, well, yeah, but part of that was because they, they manipulated the system and stopped all the selling. Exactly that. Exactly that. Now, I heard a guy... And this is an interesting take. And then tell me if, if you think I'm misinterpreting him or something like this. But he said that at the peak, so when Rob, when GameStop was trading at 450, there were and there always have been 50 million shares of GME. But at the peak, there were 270 million outstanding share promises that were to mm-hmm. become that were to come back if people were to cash in on their calls or people were trying to sell their calls or exercise or something. So there was five times the amount of shares promised than existed when it was at its peak. And so if the brokerages had uh, if the, the puts had to be covered and the brokerage began to buy the shares at whatever price they had to buy them to cover the shorts, then mm-hmm. that would have pushed the price up even further. And something like 
200 million promises of several thousand dollars just wouldn't have been able to be fulfilled because the shares don't exist uh, and it would have been an absolute catastrophe had they not done that now this guy was you know this i'm quoting to you a talking head that i saw on msnbc for four minutes you know i'm not an expert uh, what do you think of that idea do you think there's some validity there or does that sound oh, way I off absolutely go ahead and get it on an old copy of wall street and that's exactly how they took gordon gecko down hmm. uh the, the airline guys the union people did exactly that they bit up a stock and they bit it down and they went uh, they went a couple of different directions until gordon lost his ass hmm. and so it's, it's all was all it's almost parallel to it it's the same game the game has been around for a long time yep. and it's the thing it, it's the haves and the have-nots if you've got a lot of money and you've got money that you can lose, you're not going to have a problem. It's the people that, that are trying to, to, uh, to get in and do some stuff. Now, greed sometimes can be bad. There's a lot of people that uh, lost a ton of money in that, in that scam in New York uh, uh, where it was a Ponzi scheme. And, uh, but they were trying to get rich quick and got in over the head. They got into a, a businesses that they... You know, had no business being in because the the profits were so good, mm. and so sometimes you got to get burnt in order to uh, uh, to learn. And some of these people, unfortunately, uh, uh, they uh, unfortunately got talked into betting their life savings mm. in that stuff, which which you know that's their problem. You know, you only bet as much as you can afford to lose. Mm -hmm. It's like going to Vegas. You know, when I play blackjack. Uh, I I win a little and I draw some back, and I win a little and I draw some back, and the, once I lose the, the the whole pot, I then start at the bottom bet again, and build it up and draw, mm. build it up and draw. Mm. It's called money money management, yep. and if you don't if you don't play that, you just you know push it all in, okay, then you know grab your car keys and go home. Yeah, uh, I actually became financially literate just this past year so up till last february uh, i was responsible i mean i have a credit card and i have student debt that i'm managing and i pay my bills and i keep my credit score high so i was i wasn't irresponsible up till last year but i didn't understand enough about the market to participate uh and so the money markets and so my buddy showed me a strategy uh, uh and showed me an, an equity strategy, trading strategy that had a very limited loss potential and a very high gain potential. Uh, so he showed me that in February. I started to learn it. I didn't quite like it, uh, so I didn't stick with it. I moved to futures trading, and there's even some programs that allow you to write code to do trading for you. And I thought last year, I thought I had written an algorithm that was going to make me several hundred to the many to a couple thousand dollars a day, because that's what it was doing in my test environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was so excited. And so I put in real money, I moved it over to my real account, and it immediately within a couple hours lost me $300. Because it turns out, your simulated uh, trading environment is instantaneous with any number of contracts. But in the real environment, there's a delay and you can only buy so many in one go. So <laughs> I said, well, that doesn't right. work. Uh, but uh, since then, I moved over to options, uh, not trading, really. I have a strategy called it's called the wheel. 
Uh, it's a strategy where you sell options. It's really safe. You get a nice return, and I've got a nice return for the past year. And so I'm really grateful to my buddy for showing me that. But uh, financial literacy and financial responsibility, I'm arguing, is actually part of what needs to be the cornerstone of child education uh, in the next America. Because we have so many American children today that just don't know how to manage money. And it's not their fault because their parents don't know and their friends don't know. So they don't know how to manage money because they don't know anybody who knows how to manage, manage money. So how can you blame them? When I, when I uh, was in high school, I met my best buddy and he's my best buddy to this day. He lives about four blocks over from me. Matter of fact, it was over last night. And we met in a class called You and Your Money. Mm. And it went through everything about... You know, how do you balance in public a school this class? Uh, it was in Millican, Long Beach. Wow. I wonder and if they still called, have it. No, they don't. They, they, oh. they, and that's why the kids these days don't know how to manage their money. Hmm. And, and things have changed because now there's credit cards and, and debit cards and stuff that weren't invented when we were doing it. But they went through the basics about what a savings account was, what a CD was, um, you know, how to, how to write your name in a checkbook, how to balance a checkbook, and do all the basic stuff to watch your money. Hmm. And the kids don't get that kind of training today. This is kind of like in the high schools now. They used to have home ec classes that had washing machines in them. And they had they had industrial arts stuff that had actual um, um, uh, woodworking tools mm -hmm. and metal tools and stuff. They don't have that anymore. I took wood shop. I had wood shop. And it's, it's, it, 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 it disturbs me because I go into some of these schools and I go in the old in what's now the the maintenance room and that was the old the old uh, shop mm, area mm. and there is some wonderful wonderful um uh table saws and and uh, welding equipment and stuff that's just you know covered in dust and it's those it's those hands-on kill sets that you know people are not getting mm. and i uh, you know I, I don't know what they're teach, teaching these days because everybody can't do code. I mean, that's not what everybody does. As a matter of fact, uh, anybody that has some work ethic needs to get in their car. And if they have the skill sets of construction or drywall or, or anything like that, you, you drive to Texas and you will not be without a job for a year. Hmm. Because they're going to be starving for people to do it. I can tell you and, one thing they're teaching kids is, or one thing they're doing is not teaching kids and so i know that a lot of the high school education today middle school high school education is just rote learning so it's rote history or rote math very simple math especially compared to our international counterparts math that should be well below them right high schoolers should all be learning calculus there's no reason for a 17 year old to not be doing calculus uh, that's not advanced that's just math um but they don't, but they can't do it. And so they just learn these road things and then they pass them anyway. They move them up with their grade. They move them up with their size. They move them up with their age. Uh, and then they come out of these American schools underprepared. Um, I see that happen a lot. Uh, I'm watching it happen a bit in, in my own family. Uh, and so I would, I would want kids, I would have a such, I'd be so, I would vote for a return to wood shop, metal shop. Econ, right? Uh, civics. One of the best experiences I had in, in high school 
was I was in AP history because uh, I was on a, I was on a decent trajectory, but this class really should be standard. It shouldn't have to be advanced placement. But uh, we did a play acting where we were acting as the people, as the Americans that were moving across the West. So these were the Americans that had made the Louisiana Purchase uh, and they were headed into the Mexican-American War. Uh, and so I was playing the role of a general. Uh, and it was my job to argue the general's position in this certain debate. And my teacher actually committed me for having a really deep understanding of the concept of eminent domain uh, because I argued, I pounded my hand on the table and I said, we are going coast to coast and there's nothing any any Mexicans can do to stop us. And so she said, mm -hmm. that's a great job. You really understood the concept. And, you know, I, I think that was an important thing for a 16 year old to understand how people think the history of our culture. But. I guess my point is that what we used to call normal, now we call advanced, but that should not be the case. Um, well, but and when now we're, now we're getting some some twists and turns that I think is going to really hurt us. I don't know whether you've listened to the news the other day, but they're now calling mathematics racist. Believe it or not, I've only heard those stumblings. What did what did they say? Tell please tell me what they said. I can't even imagine this. Uh, the woke culture believes there is no absolute right and wrong. It's all shades of gray. And mathematics is exact. It either is or it isn't. Mm -hmm. Two plus two equals four. And they say sometimes. And if it and, and if I and if I and if I and if I say it it's five, well I tried and that ought to be good enough. But they're actually saying that if you press the 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 logicness of mathematics you're being a racist I, I don't know where they got this but it's going to affect uh our our stem students uh the science and math stuff if they go down this path because kids don't like mathematics anyway that's the other thing too i was really never good at math mm -hmm. um i got algebra but uh trigonometry and and uh all that other kind of stuff was you know, way past my pay grade. I'd, I'd much rather talk than, than do that stuff. Uh, but I use algebra all the time when I'm working on my Excel spreadsheet. So I did learn something. Mm. And really what I learned in college, I didn't really learn any skill set per se. The only thing that I learned in college was to learn how to find out things. I learned how to learn. I learned how to, to take a concept and figure it out. And that's really uh, all it did for me. I mean, anybody that you know, memorizes a chapter in a book uh, and take a test and stuff like this, they're going to forget it. Because if they don't use it in a practical uh, method, what, you know, of what use is it? And as a matter of fact, and I, I hate to admit it, but uh, at the end of my college career, I wouldn't buy a textbook. I'd go to every lecture, take mm. all my notes, mm. and then the, uh, an hour or so before the test, I'd go into the bookstore, I'd grab the textbook, I'd read the chapters that the test was on, fill my mind with as much, you know, other knowledge as I possibly could, so I wouldn't forget it, buy a blue book, and go in and take my test. And it worked out fine for me, and I saved a lot of money because mm. I didn't have to buy any books. Mm. Uh, because a lot of times, you know, things, you know, things don't work out that way. And there are other books that I just loved. Um, one of them was a it was in a statistics class of all things. And it was part of, of speech and 
And I guess what it was as part of their their four classes or ones that were in there is that they, you know, wanted you to learn how to, you know, explain things in in logical formats or what have you. And one textbook that I did buy that I, I will never forget, and it was called How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> and what it was is given any 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 set of numbers, anything that, that's out there that's true, that's black and white and true. You can manipulate those numbers in any any uh, framework you want in order to, to uh, uh, follow your narrative. So if you've got a line graph, you spread it out. To, if you if you want to make it look uh, you know less effective, if you want to show a steep rise, you shorten it up, mm. and you just move the things around, mm. and uh, then you can have your narrative, and that's the you know slide on the wall. But they're listening to you; they're not looking at the slide on the wall. Mm. Slide on the wall is merely, uh, you know, reflective of, of of what your agenda is, and I guess maybe that's where, what where they're getting with this this woke culture about about mathematics being being racist. I think that's a totally wrong word, but uh, you can make mathematics look any way you want if you do it right. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. So one of my favorite thinkers uh, of all time is Jordan Peterson. And he's put forward the argument that this new type of thinking, which uh, Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay did incredible work breaking down this this critical race theory thinking and its and its offspring uh, that that we now have called woke culture. Um, it is at its core a religious movement that aims to push against what it perceives to be the status quo power structures. And so it anything. And so one of the things, this is to your point, one of the things that it has labeled this, this religion has labeled as oppressive white patriarchal is logic itself. <laughs> right. Logic itself is a form of oppression. Now I'm going to go out on a limb. And I'm going to say that any group that has determined that logic itself is flaw is destined to collapse. It cannot Absolutely. stand. A Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And there's another thing, too. The, the, the definition of faith is the belief in something unproven. Hmm. So if you believe in something, whether it be religion or whether it be, you know, uh, anything else uh, with regard to philosophies, if you believe it, it doesn't mean that it's provable. Mm -hmm. It just means that you believe it. So to, to me, that's called called an opinion. Now, it if you believe is. it whole, if you believe it wholeheartedly, that's fine. Find yourself other people that believe the same way and have your little club, and and you're fine. But don't press that on me, pal, because uh, I, I I may not believe in that. You know, that's why they have Presbyterians. That's why they have Catholics. That's why they have, uh, you know, Protestants and stuff. So. Um, you know that's just a club, and for for people to to push their belief, their faith, onto somebody, is all wrong. You just find the people that you can control uh, control with, and you get along with, and and that's your club, and stick and stick with it. And you can do it part time, or you can do it full time. It all depends on you. And they're doing it. They're doing us all a great disservice by trying to impress their ideology into the public classroom uh, they fail to understand that's why the public classroom 
is not a Christian classroom because Christianity is a belief system. It's a beautiful belief system. I come from a family of Christians, but Christians today in America are mature and evolved. And so Christians know that, okay, this is our belief system, but this is separate from the knowledge system that exists across the world, the objective knowledge, science, technology, engineering, math. These things exist outside of your belief structure. That's what makes them knowledge. And so modern Christians know this, but these these wokesters don't know this. They don't know that their beliefs are beliefs. They think their beliefs are true fact that the United States, uh, I mean, of course, the, the history of the United States is a history of racism. No one will push against that. But the idea that that math that that's the only history of the united states is wrong uh, i'm actually a huge proponent of reviving uh, the constitution and reviving the centrality of the constitution uh, and using that as as an idea to regalvanize our disparate populace uh, because these i th yeah i really think the the analysis of the wokesters as a religion is most fitting, you know, the, the religion of racism and anti-racism, right? You can say, oh, either you're racist or you're, or you're either you're anti-racist or you're racist. Uh, this is Ibram X. Kendi's idea. Um, I just don't see well, how that can be categorized as anything other than a belief. Well, the word, uh, the word racist right now is becoming a platitude. Hmm. And that the more they say it, the more it becomes, uh, there's no, there's no value in, 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 in the word of the belief. It, it has no meaning because it's so overused and it's okay, fine. And it just rolls off a duck's back. Mm. And 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 the things that gets me sometimes is that right now the, I, they're pushing this reparations thing again. Mm. And uh, okay, that's fine. I understand. And they got the 1690 project, whatever it is. It says, well, wait a minute, pal. Time out. It goes back before that. Who do you get the reparations from? Do you get it from George Washington, who bought a slave? Or do you get reparations from the people in Nigeria that sold the slaves? Mm. Who They would have gotten them had they not been oppressed and put in boats and brought to you. Yeah, they, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, here. I'm pro-reparations. And so I think that you could reasonably get the money from American enterprises so you'd have to trace the dollars back. You'd have to trace the dollars back to the businesses that were slave businesses. So this would be it would be uniquely American, specifically American businesses that were slave businesses. Trace the dollars back and then maybe tax those businesses that you can direct connect directly to uh, the history of slavery more directly, um, more heavily than just a general across the board tax. Uh, but how many how many how many cut how many of those companies? I are, have been in business since 1776. None. Well, the but you'd have to trace. That's why you'd have to trace the dollars. And so, because it's not going to be one company, it's very unlikely to be. It's almost not. Not. It's definitely not going to be one company. But you can trace those dollars. Uh, but of course, it becomes very diffuse because if I get ten dollars and then I buy a service from you for five dollars and then somebody says, oh. Kari was a criminal. We need to trace all of his money. Well, now you've got five of those dollars, but the when I bought them from you, it was a fully legit service. And so this is the one hurdle that could be overcome uh, to pay reparations in which you trace the dollars that were made on the backs of American slaves and then 
reasonably say, okay, we've followed how these dollars have flowed through the American economy up to 2020. And so we're going to pass an industry tax or a one-time tax or something like this in order to pay for the reparations without saying that these people that are being taxed more heavily, of course, the tax should hit all of us. It should hit the entire nation. I'm not saying that it should land squarely and solely on these businesses. I don't, I don't believe that. But I believe that reparations could be paid by doing this and then having that be the end of it, because uh, the the book on slavery has yet to be closed in this country. It's unfortunate. The 13th Amendment has an exception. It's very clear. Uh, you cannot be a slave in the United States except as punishment for a crime. And so that means that mass incarceration and inmates today are still technically slaves under the same system that we uh, purportedly abolished but we haven't actually abolished it um and so that's how i think it could be done that's how i think it could be done reasonably and fairly relatively well then 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 do you have an idea of uh who who gets the money i mean does kamala harris get it does kamala harris get it she's jamaican and uh, indonesian so she's jamaican I don't. I, so I've identified 38 million Americans that are the African that are the American descendants of slaves, and so these are black people that don't identify as African immigrants since slavery. So I don't know exactly how uh, Kamala Harris falls, but it's just about 38 million people that I've identified that would get it. Well, so so you're talking about about um, not tracing it back to the founding of of the first slave boat that came across the ocean blue. But you're saying that you can be a victim of slavery uh, in modern times. Not, not a victim. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a victim of slavery, but I would say that it's clear that slavery, American slavery as an institution did an immense harm to the black descendants of slaves in this country. Uh, And the harm has been transformed and perpetuated across time such that today we have what I call, or I don't call this, this is somebody else's analogy. It's the broken leg example. So if Jeff Bezos hits you with his car uh, in a crosswalk, you had the right of way, he drove through the crosswalk, it's totally his fault, and both of your legs are broken. Uh, And he pays you a substantial sum to say, hey, sorry about that. I was texting, shouldn't have driven through the crosswalk. I broke both your legs. Here's a substantial sum, several tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and you go, okay, thanks, Jeff. And then he goes away. Now, here you are with broken legs. Whose job is it to heal your legs? It's yours, right? And so this is the analogy that I use for the for most black Americans uh, is that today, you know, slavery was getting hit by the car. Uh, the war was fought over <laughs> over getting the money out the money never went out right there were never were 40 acres in a mule they rolled that back pretty immediately during the uh during the reconstruction but nevertheless here we are today slavery is not an issue but the effects of slavery uh, through redlining through jim crow through mass incarceration through cointel right these are, are was it pro is it co-pro intel something i forget where they trace down the black panthers um these are the lineages. These are the lingering vestiges, harmful, poisonous vestiges left by slavery. And the, that line can be drawn. And so I'm for a money sum being dished out to these 38 million people identified in the 2010 census. Cons, uh, yeah, 2010 census. 
and then calling that the end of it. And I'm also for closing that exception in the 13th Amendment. So I think those two things done together uh, would really go a long way to unify the country because and I can tell you firsthand how the lineage of slavery uh, manifests in my life is that I didn't grow up with a father. And so why was my father irresponsible? Uh, one would argue that he was irresponsible because he had irresponsible examples in his family. And why are so many black men so seemingly irresponsible? Uh, I think a lot of people trace this to mass incarceration, the way it hit the black community, black community so disproportionately as the latest manifestation of the long history of the harmful effects of slavery. Uh, so I don't think that's unreasonable uh, to, to do that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Now I've had, uh, I put that point of view out to Reddit uh, and I put out to even close personal friends. Uh, I mean, I guess we can say for the record, you know, I'm black, you're white. We check those boxes <laughs> and then, you know, it just doesn't right. affect our, our relationship and my understanding of you as a wonderful human being. Uh, and they say, when the guy Chris said, hey, wait a minute, I am German. My grandparents came here after the Second World War. How can I possibly be taxed for slavery? And my response to that is it's not you personally. And so it's not any white people today or any businesses today that are personally needing or, or that would personally be be carrying the responsibility for perpetrating the slavery and so in the case of the this is where the analogy breaks down of the of the leg breaking analogy because if my grandfather drove through your grandfather's broken legs is it now my responsibility to pay you for your grandfather's broken legs this is this is a more fitting analogy and that's where the one trouble comes up but i argue that it's actually our country that has to pay it's actually the american federal government that has to right the wrong of horrible chattel slavery that crippled and broke so many. Uh, and so that's the institution that I think has been continuous since slavery and should pay uh, for what it did. Well, and, and but it, to, to that extension, okay, what, uh, you know, granted, uh, you could say that the uh, American Indian tribes, you know, were given reparations by, quote, be given land and given money and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But what about the Chinese that they brought in to work on the railroads and stuff that were basically slaves? I mean, do they get reparation too? Or the Japanese that were held in internment camps? Those guys really were the ones that the government should have reimbursed for, for stuff because they took away their, their livelihood. They took away their businesses. They took away everything from them. You know, and so I guess my question is, it doesn't just stop with the... With, uh, uh, the black population, it, it 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 has all sorts of legs and fingers and roots. It can go around, and, uh, and you can find any any you know any type of of oppressed uh, uh, culture. Could be the Jews, could be the Italians, could mm. be the the Irish. You know they were oppressed when they came over on the boat. I mean, so where does it stop? Uh, yeah, I'm not arguing for any program other than black reparations and i think that i, I don't think that's an unreasonable position because black slavery specifically african slavery in the united states was the atrocious instance of chattel slavery uh, i don't think there's any any dispute about that that the that there are very i would say there are very few phenomena that can be 
spoken of in the same breath with the Holocaust and American black chattel slavery is one of those phenomena. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. It was it was a horrendous thing that happened in our history. But, you know, we've had slavery going back to the to the Egyptian days. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always been slavery. So, uh, you know, I, I hate to say that it, it's, you know, what culture has evolved from. But, you know, that this was something that finally got fixed. Uh, but it, didn't get but it hasn't. It hasn't been fixed yet. There's a hole in it. There's a hole in it. Well, there's no slavery. No, that's still the people incarcerated are still slaves, literally slaves under the same system because of the exception in the 13th Amendment. And that's something that I've called for for the past couple years, several years even. Let's end slavery uh, because most Americans don't know that the institution is still going on. There are men who were fighting the California fires in 2019 that were being paid two dollars an hour on the front line of fighting a wildfire. And you're being paid two dollars an hour because you're an inmate. And so you can technically be paid slave wages because you're technically a slave. Uh, And so I think we need to end slavery actually ended remove the exception uh, all we need to do is take the language out the language is something like um i can even read it but it's something like the slavery is illegal except for and all you have to do is take out the except for so neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment of a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the united states or any place subject to their jurisdiction all you have to do is remove that except to duly convicted part (laughs) that's it just take that language out and we've ended slavery uh, yeah, I suppose. But, you know, and, and to your, in your example of the firefighters, uh, let's say that, that they were paid $2 an hour. Yeah. Okay. However, from what I understand, uh, these guys were volunteers. And what time they spent in the trenches doing whatever they were doing, they got um, their sentences reduced as well. And so there were other benefits to this other than the 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 two dollars or whatever their hourly stuff was in order to do this and from what i understand they didn't make them fight the fires mm-hmm. they offered them a chance to do it so they could have volunteered not to yes yes uh, I, so for me the the plight of the incarcerated firefighter isn't a primary cause to remove the exception from the 13th amendment uh, that's i wouldn't i'm not calling to remove the exception based on that experience as you just said it's it's very great so a lot of them wanted to go fight the fires and we're happy to take a few bucks to do it. Uh, so I'm calling to remove the exception so that we can bring our actual, the actual substance of our culture in line with the face that we put forward. We want to walk as Americans as if we ended slavery. Let's actually end slavery so we can be that much more confident about how we're moving forward. Well, but if we do that, then Kari, uh, what what's Al Sharpton going to do? What is Jesse Jackson going to do if they don't have a a a, a culture of people that mm. are downtrodden mm. and everybody's on you know now uh, they're they're like everybody else? What where there where is there a victim pool? Because oh. the only reason they make money is through victims. Absolutely, uh, I I hope that victim pool dr- cries itself to sleep. <laughs> That's what I hope that victim pool does. Uh, let's end slavery, right? Let's pay reparations, and then let's let's behave as if skin color 
is as important as hair color, because in my estimation, that's how important it is. Uh, if you had a section of society that said the redheads need to be separate from the blondes for this whole number of reasons, then a lot of people would say that's an arbitrary, silly distinction. You need to actually pay attention to whether people are hardworking, whether they're trustworthy, whether they're honest. Those are more important characteristics. Skin color is, is exactly one of those. Uh, and that's yeah, my, I, I, yeah. I don't know. Have you ever have you ever dated a redhead? <laughs> Sometimes they need to be separated. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I, unless I have, I, I did pursue. There was this redhead that I was pursuing in Long yeah. Beach City College. Uh, gosh, I forget her name. She's wild. Didn't never yeah. caught her. Yeah. Barry's Barry's a redhead. And I've always had a, a fetish for redheads, but I, it was just more <laughs> of a joke than anything else. No. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, I think we could do it. I think we're, we're, there's a reasonable path. Uh, for slavery but that's our for reparations but that's not um it's not a hill i'm gonna die on what i've told my cousin because uh, i've got a cousin who's really 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 for it uh i said look the thing about reparations is it's insulting to say that black americans will only be okay if we get reparations that's an insult Right. To say that, oh, unless you pay us reparations, which is the attitude of a lot of people like Sharpton, uh, the attitude is unless reparations go out, black people will just go to, on to continue to languish. That's not true. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, you know, I'm going to be my family's going to be fine either way. Uh, I think there's a reasonable argument argument to be made for reparations and there are reasonable arguments to be made against it. Webinar. Webinar. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, so, Barry came. You're fine. You're fine. Tell her I said hello. Yeah, no, no, Barry. <laughs> Yeah, Barry came in and said, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, so. yeah. And uh, uh, I think arguments could be made either way. But I think we're going to be fine either way uh, in terms of that. Now, one hill that maybe I'd die on, um, maybe not, maybe it's not wise to die on hills, but I'm a basic income proponent. I'm a huge basic income proponent. Uh, now, this, of course, runs into budgetary constraints with reparations. Um it's kind of an either or, you know, I've argued because uh, I argue for basic income and for reparations from similar over kind of overlapping tax measures. So I don't expect both to happen. So if you ask me, would I rather have reparations or basic income? I'd rather have basic income because uh, I think I think basic income would disproportionately benefit poorer families and poor families are disproportionately uh, black and brown. So I think that's kind of a kind of a two birds, one stone there. But I would imagine now, based well, on my understanding of your economics, I think you're going to be against basic income. Well, I mean, somebody's got to pay for it. Hmm. But, uh, but but then again, uh, going right now. That's a basic income. Which program is that? Welfare. It's it's. That's Similar, that's a basic income. Not a, it's not a basic income in that they take it from you once you get a job. So that's an important dynamic that would be very sure they different do. under basic income. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Basic sure. in, basic income, they would not take from you after you get a job. That would be different. You'd get it either way. You'd get it whether you're working or not. Oh, okay, so I'm making 150 grand a year and still getting a basic income? Yes. Really? Yeah. Then who's going to pay that, Val? We'd all be paying it as a federal sales tax, effectively. Boy, that's regressive. It's it's not regressive. It's regressive if you look at 
if you look at percent of tax as a percent of income. So this is one of the cases of statistics telling the story that you want to tell, right? So if you look at percent of tax, sales tax paid as percent of income, then yes, technically sales taxes are regressive because poor people pay a higher percentage of their wealth in sales taxes. But if you give out a basic income of something like $1,200 a month, and then we institute a federal sales tax of, let's say, 13 uh, percent. So in order for a person to be paying that back and just be paying it all back into the system or even have a net loss, they'd have to be spending upwards of nine thousand dollars a month in retail goods. Now, no poor person I know spends nine thousand dollars a month in retail goods. Uh, so for them, it would be a net gain from the tax. But there are businesses. I work for one that probably spends well over they probably spend uh, you know tens of thousands of dollars maybe a hundred thousand dollars a month just on goods and so for operating expenses uh in in businesses that are clearing that type of profit and that are spending that that type of revenue then yes they would be paying into the basic income system but for most poor people it would be a net gain well but but, but Kari, 80 percent of americans don't pay taxes they don't pay income taxes that's for sure 80 they pay sales Sixty percent, mm. over sixty, over sixty percent do not pay a penny in tax. Yeah, the only the only time the only time poor people are taxed per se is sales tax, which is regressive, uh, gas gasoline tax, which is regressive. Mm. Every time the government raises taxes on goods and services, it hurts the person that's making thirty thousand dollars a whole hell of a lot more. That it, then it hurts somebody making a hundred grand a year. Well, that's so when you, at, that's when you raise their taxes without shooting them a twelve hundred dollar check every month. That's a different. Yeah, so, that's a beast of a different feather. But, but if everybody's got to pay taxes, mm -hmm. that means that people making twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year, they got to pay the same tax, same percent. Mm -hmm. They can't be exempt. But they have to pay the same. But if you're tax. if you're making thirty thousand dollars a year, then a basic income would represent almost what an 80 percent increase in your annual pay with no 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 12 over 30 something like a 30 percent increase in your annual pay uh and you wouldn't be paying that all back in taxes so it would be a net gain for people making 30k it would be a net gain for people up to about 100k depending on their spending habits if they're particularly frugal it would be more of a net gain for them um, yeah but do you do you think you can sell to 60 percent of the population that aren't paying taxes that now you are going to have to pay taxes no, sale, they already pay, pay taxes. Sales tax. They already pay, already pay taxes. No, 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 no. I'm talking about income tax. Sales no, tax. No, it wouldn't I mean, be an income tax. You, you, can't, you, you can't write off sales tax. You can't write off, you know, the, your gasoline tax. Yeah. No, income tax wouldn't, because income tax is very easily dodged. It's very slippery. Um, and income tax wouldn't capture the, the revenue. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's there's the, uh, you know, the, 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 the basic tax that, Everybody pays, and some people pay more, um, and nobody pays less. They either pay that or or zero. Yeah. So yeah. you could your your adjusted gross income and stuff like this. Um, they've got um, minimum distribution, and that's or, or I can't remember the, the terminology for it. Okay, and that's what you pay. Most people just fill out their form and do it. There's other people they don't pay a nickel. And so yeah. you're going to ma be making them. Now, granted, let's say it may not be as much as that guaranteed income coming mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. but they're not going to be used to paying taxes at all. 
but it's a it's at the point of sale so i'm actually i call it a federal sales tax but it's actually a vat it's a value added tax that would be paid business to business that would go on every time a glass maker buys sand and every time amazon installs glass doors from that glass maker they would be paying the tax and it, but it would all so it would it would be in the system that way but it would land ultimately land on consumers as a federal sales tax and so i just save a step by just calling it a federal sales tax because that's what it is at the end of the day well and i would have no problem with the federal uh, sales tax a lot mm -hmm. of people you know think i'm nuts too however i'll only pay a federal sales tax if i don't have to pay income tax i was one of the i could other. be i could be argued be, i could be argued in it, that direction i'm not it, a it, huge it, it, yeah. it can't be both it can't be both. You can't mm. double tax somebody. Mm. Just because I happen to work harder than the guy down the street, uh, or I have a skill set better than he has, not that he's a dummy or anything, not that he doesn't have the same opportunity. You know, that's the uh, thing that people don't understand between equity and equality. Equality means, means that everybody has the same chance to fail. Everybody has the same chance to do something. Equity means that I have to prop you up because you either have a deficiency, you don't have the necessities, you don't have the skill sets mm. uh, in order to do what I do. Mm. Okay, you know, and how do you how do you judge? In, I don't want to even say intelligence. There's a lot of there's a lot of of, of poor, uh, smart people out there, mm. Mm. and so you know how how do you incentivize people? Because people don't want to sit around. I can guarantee you during this COVID, you know, sit at home stuff. It's driving people nuts. Mm. They'd mm. much rather be working mm -hmm. than sitting and watching the, te the television or playing games on on uh, their Xbox. Mm -hmm. they, they truly would. I know I would. But now I've gotten to the point to where though there is no work out there for me to go to. Fortunately, I've 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 gone through most of my my working career, and at sixty six, you know, I'm starting to get my Social Security that I paid into, mm. and I'm going to be enjoying that. Uh, that I don't need to produce anymore. Somebody can come behind me mm -hmm. and produce. Now, if somebody needs uh, a skill set or if they need some information that I have uh, that they don't, they can come to me and they can uh, supplement my income. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of getting to the point to where this COVID thing really forced my hand into giving up the work ethic. No. I don't. Yeah, I've, I used. Uh, I used. I used to. I used to never work a day in my life, hmm. and I used to enjoy going to work every time my feet hit the floor. Especially when I was selling phones and in Palm Springs and stuff like this, I never worked. I never worked a day doing that because I always enjoyed it. And there are some people that that just have a horrible time getting out of bed uh, to do anything. Hmm. Uh, they don't want to go to work. They, they go to work as they have to go to work. Mm. Uh, but there are other people that love to do what they do. Mm -hmm. And if you love doing what you're doing, you're not working. Yep. Yep. No, I'm uh, I'm of that same accord. And so I'm actually arguing for a basic income because I think that's what would take our society to the the next level. Um, so thinking about thinking about what um thinking about what people would do. So there's actually a, a large question of human nature on the table when you talk about basic income, because uh, you're talking about what would a person do if they don't have to do anything? 
That's a huge question. Uh, what would now when I answer for myself, <laughs> if you say, what would you do, Kari, if you didn't have to do anything? Well, for me, I would do a lot of what I currently do. I would build video games. I would talk to my friends. I'd I'd interact with cool people. I'd learn tech. I you know, this is what I would do if I didn't have to do anything. And for the 40 percent of Americans that actually pay income, 40 percent of Americans, I might not even be 40, might be 20 or something that are in careers that they actually enjoy. This is their reality. They would do what they're doing for Bezos, Musk, Gates, Buffett, for these guys, they would do what they do. They don't have to be forced to do what they do. They would do it anyway, you know, regardless of what they have to do. That's the, and so that's the part of our culture and our economy that we want more of. We want more people only doing the things that they want to do. That's how we're going to get the most out of our culture. And I'm confident that we've now developed automation and and we've had enough technological advances to the point to we to where we are in the jetsons future so you would have been around when they were developing the freeways you know you'd have been younger but you'd have been maybe in your you know maybe when you're about in your teens you would have heard them say we're going to get to the point where people are going to have 60 percent, 80 percent leisure by the year 2000 right they just they said we're going to have so much leisure we're just going to not know what to do with ourselves with all the leisure we're going to have uh, i'm becoming convinced that we actually have made that leap but it's our cultural ideas around trickle down and it's our ideas around work ethic and the common populace that, that get hung up around oh well people have to go out and work and we seem to have lost the thread that most people most common people want to contribute and so if you give them a basic income if you say to them look you don't have to go sell yourself to uh, Domino's pizza in order to feed your kids, you can just feed your kids and then apply yourself to being a better brother, being a better husband, being a better sister, learning some technology, just going doing what you want to do, because that's going to be your best contribution anyway. Uh, and that's a concept that I call attentional autonomy. And I think that wealthy and I know for sure the children of wealthy people have attentional autonomy. They know that they can try and fail. They can try to be a baker and fail. Then they can try to be a scientist and fail. They can just keep trying and failing, but they can keep getting up again. And so they have a, a very soft net and cushion on which to land. And this is because their parents and grandparents have worked hard and they deserve that cushion. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have that cushion. But what I am saying is that all Americans have now we have the capability to give this a much better cushion to all americans and i'm only arguing for citizens by the way i'm not calling this for everybody who just comes over that's that would be i, I don't think that would be a reasonable sense hmm. yeah something i could think about yeah 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 what have you been interested in uh in your in your COVID time has anything new grab your attention any new interest or uh, you know, uh, I, I really haven't. Um, I've had uh, a, a few health issues and stuff that I'm sorry kind, to hear of kind of curtailed me or slowed me down a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, I'm really kind of uh, uh, kind of in uh, in coasting mood right now. You know, uh, I would always do some oddball things like I got, I got involved in LED lighting and, and I got into some of this UV uh, um, uh stuff for the uvc for the uh, sterilization of 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 surfaces and stuff mm. like this i and um i've been selling some of that stuff i'm still doing my embroidery and and, and a lot of different things but i'm just kind of waiting to uh 
to, to figure things out. Barry's still working hard. Matter of fact, she was out today uh, doing her real estate and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And I've been, been kind of uh, kind of kicking back and what have you. But uh, there's a lot of things that I would like to do again that um, I, I'm unable to do. Uh, and some of it stuff has to do with, you know, recreation, like hunting and fishing and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, but uh, uh, hopefully things will get better in time. Uh, and uh, go from there. But really nothing new has has come up. I mean, other than what I'm doing today, this is something new. I never, I, I've never even listened to a podcast. <laughs> really? And never even, I wouldn't even know how to log on to one. <laughs> uh, and I know my friends do and stuff like that. And, and I've seen some. And, and my thought is on, on some of the stuff I've even seen on the internet, that really if it's, if it's over 30 minutes, mm. I don't watch them. Mm -hmm. I just don't have that much time or there's more things that I need to see. Mm -hmm. you, you know you know what I'm saying? I, do. I absolutely if do. I, yeah. if, I, if I've got five books to read, you know, uh, can I scan through all five and, and get most of the information? Mm. Or do I read one and ignore the other four? Mm. So uh, it's, it's a prior, prioritizing thing at that point in time. Now, the good thing is that that I don't think it's said and done yet, and I and I think the government still has a lot of work to do, and the people have got to try to heal or something like this. But now that, that a big part of this turnover turnover of of the the federal government is is you know hopefully coming to a close, that people can get back and doing stuff. But it's mm. it's consumed the news to the point to where. There's a lot of programs I don't watch anymore because mm. all it is is, is, is hate, mm. you know, whether it's on the Republican side or it's a, whether it's on the, the, Dem the Democrat side. Mm. It's just hate. And I don't have time for haters. It's, it, you know, the first person who gets mad loses. Uh, and so I just try to ignore it. And so I've been trying to, to go and, and look at other things. As a matter of fact, uh, what I have been doing is I've been watching more of the Discovery Channel and History Channel and and learning new things, hmm. learning stuff that I never knew before. And uh, the only thing that I may pick up, uh, and I was talking to my buddy last night about it, uh, I might start making the moonshine. Nice. And I, think that, I think that would be fun. That sounds and, fun. And they've got these little kits you can do, and you just make sure your neighbors don't you know, turn you in. But I think they're going to... They're going to treat moonshine kind of like they are with rec uh, recreational marijuana. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you're uh, you're not bottling it and selling it at the grocery store. I mean, you're just making something. You're you're making a well, confection for yourself. Yeah, and the thing is, you, you watch these kids, uh, the, these guys on on uh, moonshiners. I watched a lot, and these guys, you know, these are all backwoods hillbilly things that people. And anybody, anybody talks with a southern accent, you think they're stupid, mm. or most people do. Mm. These guys are brilliant. They're mm. chemists. They 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 uh, they try different formulas. They know how things work. They're mechanics. They're innovators. I mean, these guys are brilliant people. And uh, you want to watch that program uh, once or twice, and and uh, you can learn. Uh, I've learned a lot uh, from them, just from an ingenuity standpoint. And you know, they got a problem, and they think it out, and they fix it. They don't have any, have any formal training doing it. You know, it was all empirical uh, uh, data that they've been acquiring all their lives mm. and, you know, and, and trial and error and failure and success. 
And uh, it's just, I, I just think it's amazing. And the chemistry part of it, you know, really flabbergasts me because, you know, they will then explain a little bit of the chemistry and how it works and how the thumper keg works and, and uh, how you get, you know, uh, uh, better alcohol content, better flavor, how, where you can add flavor and, and not, uh, you know, uh, upset the batch. I mean, just all sorts of different things. And these guys, if you listen to them, they're brilliant. Plus, they all, also have a lot of different southern quips and quotes and stuff. And I, I just heard one uh, just the other night, and uh, I'll never forget it. And he said, uh, a good friend will help you move. A great friend will help you move the body. <laughs> yeah. And they and they come out with these little, little uh, you know, anecdotes and stuff like this. They're just funny. Uh, but these guys, you know, if you to look at them, you would you wouldn't think that they could build a fence. Now, but, what is know, the what's the proof of moonshine? Is it? It's not two hundred proof. I mean, that's that's just pure that, alcohol. That, that's the that's the maximum alcohol can be. That's 100% alcohol. Yeah. Uh, but uh, 180 is really the highest uh, that they will even sell. Mm. Uh, but normal uh, high proof is 90, uh, low proof is 70. Okay. So at 70, so, you're really talking about a, a flavorful drink. You're not, you're, I mean, that's, what's beer? So that's, well, that's, well, 70, 70 proof uh, is, is like vodka. Okay. Uh, 80 and 90 proof, 86 proof. That's whiskey. And then the scotches get up to, you know, 100 proof. Rum will get to 100, 151. Bacardi, you know, mm. and things like this, they get a little on the high side. But those are sweet drinks. You can mix it with fruit juice. And, and tequila is kind of the same way. It'll come and get you if you're not careful. Uh, and beer at 3.5, that's 7% alcohol. So, uh, and wine is 12% alcohol. So, um, um, but, uh, and then I found something else interesting too. They were, they were talking about if you're a, a home distiller or want to try it out for the first time and you don't want to make a mash or don't know how and stuff like this, uh, you can just go and buy some rot gut wine, you know, a, a two buck chuck, and pour it into the into the still and distill it into alcohol because the al- you're just taking the alcohol out of the wine. Mm. And it tastes like nothing. It tastes like vodka. Mm. And, and actually, alcohol doesn't really have a taste. Uh, you have to add the flavor to it, like gin. You add juniper berries to it, and uh, and 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 vodka. You add different flavors and stuff to it. So uh, that's why vodka is so cheap because they make it out of anything. You can make it out of potatoes. You can make it out of rice. You can make it out of of anything. So these huge distillers, they make a, a, a neutral alcohol, and then they sell that neutral alcohol to sub distillers, mm. and they put fl- and, and and they put flavor in it. So that's probably what Jay-Z does. Jay-Z buys raw alcohol and then adds his special special mix to it, and then he can sell it as his brand. Absolutely. And they, and they have these, it's kind of like, almost like a microbrewery. Hmm. Uh, they take that raw alcohol, and then they add their flavors and stuff to it, and that's why all these boutique flavors are out there. Uh, and, and really, uh, a buddy of mine has a brewery in Tallahassee, Florida. And he opened it up uh, a while ago, and and uh, they they do their own, you know, local brew and stuff like this. And he said, "There's really only one formula. There's only one beer." He says, "What makes them different, and whatever makes what everybody else different, is the beer wort itself is exactly the same. They just add 
spices and stuff to it that changed the mm. flavor. Mm. And but he says for the most part, beer is beer is beer is beer, uh, and it's what you put in it makes is what makes the microbrewers um, um, taste different and do their kind of stuff. So it's a very fascinating art. Like I say, there's a lot of chemistry in it, a lot of science. I think scientific literacy is the is another one of the literacies that uh, that I would like much younger kids to get uh, along with financial literacy is, you know, everybody should, should have deep respect for the periodic table uh, because that's, that's what we're made of. That's what the stuff we're drinking is made of. That's what the stuff we're eating is made of. It mm. matters. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, another thing too, I found, uh, uh, I was always under the impression or at least had lately until lately that all these rare earth metals, um, were uh, controlled by China, hmm. and in essence, they are. But you know, my thought was, or at least they projected it, that the reason they are in China is because that's the only place you can find them. Well, that's incorrect. We've got as many, as much uh, uh, rare earth metals here in the United States than anywhere else. Hmm. The problem is, the problem is we can't process it because of environmental constraints. Really, they do it. In, they do it in China because they don't care. They dump the water and they don't, they don't care. But we don't we can't process anything like that here in the United States because it's it, uh, it won't meet EPA standards. Mm. And so you know we've so we've stepped on our own on our own tail. But they didn't tell anybody, and it just finally has been coming out because of the control of China has on these rare earth metals that we couldn't go to the moon, we couldn't go to Mars, we couldn't build any of this stuff. You couldn't build your iPhone uh, without rare earth metals. And it's not because they're cornering the market on it. They're cornering the processing of it mm. because they don't care. Mm. And that's why, they're, why their steel is so cheap. Because the, when smelting process is dirty and they don't care. Mm -hmm. And so, so us joining the, the, uh, uh, the uh, Paris Climate Accords is so stupid is because we'll follow the rules. But China's not. Mm. India's not. Mm. Uh, all these other third world countries are not because they don't care. And it's mainly because they don't care about their people, hmm. uh, and that's the that's the real sad part about. It. We could even isn't... we could even describe it as even other than saying maybe because you know we can say that they care about something else more, right? Because it's you know they, I'm certain they care you know for their people somewhat, but they care differently, right? When they come to caring for their people, this would be China's case, and in, in my understanding, they care mostly and primarily about China's standing in the world uh going forward so they care that china be the premier global economy the premier global culture and that chinese people and that the chinese passport that that be honored as number one uh wherever you go in the world and that's what that's what they care about uh and so if you know if you got to pollute a few rivers so what <laughs> yeah well but but if you if you look at, at the chinese uh, skyline in many cities, you see all these huge apartment buildings. They're all empty. I've seen those. Because they don't allow their citizens to live in them. They're a showpiece. Hmm. There, is, there is no freedom in communist countries. They are, uh, the, the population is totally stifled, and they, they just soon keep you in the rice field doing what you do. And if you die, who cares? Get out of line. We got more behind you. I actually uh, just read that, that when they had the factory workers 
building or working in the cities, and this was in the 80s and 90s, the farm workers weren't allowed to sell their land uh, and buy a house in the city. They couldn't do it. They weren't allowed to do it. They had to keep ownership of their land. And this was in case the government needed to say, okay, stop working. Uh, We can't feed you in the cities. Go back to your land. And they would have some land to go back to. Yeah, it's serfdom. It's basically serfdom. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of shenanigans going on out there, and and it's the the way that the governments work. I mean, we have the same problem in in uh, 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 Cuba. They they do the same people uh, same thing with with regard to stifling their population. Mm. That's why they're still a third world country. They've got a lot of resources. Uh, they could do uh, wonderful things if the government changed their attitude. Mm. But if they don't have control of their people, then uh, they don't they can't control everything and that's why you'll never find any any um um uh, gun ownership in uh, in china or korea or or cuba mm. because if the citizens had guns there could be a revolt mm. so by confiscating it all uh you know the reason the reason our second amendment's there was not for you to uh, hunt or to protect yourself from me is to protect yourself from the government. Mm. That's what they were. What that's what it is there for. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, people need to, to read their history better. Uh, that this is, you know, a tyrannical government can only be overthrown by a well, well-formed militia. So, uh, and it all depends on how tyrannical they get. But you know, that's that's in a different conversation. Well, I'm at, um, I'm all for uh, I you know as someone who considers himself to be on the left uh you know the the left and the right the way those phrases are thrown around is more hurtful than harmful uh you know i'm not gonna land i'm not gonna make some point and then land on and the right did this and the left did that that's not what how i'm using this phrase but it's 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 fair to use left and right as general descriptors of people right uh, because that's kind of the we have a moral people have moral compasses and the moral compasses tend to go Things are mostly broken and things are mostly okay, And that kind of separates general left and right. So anyway, as someone who's generally on the left, um, I'm deeply appreciative of our Second Amendment. And the Second Amendment is clear. Citizens have the right to own guns. uh, And this every state has a right to form its militia uh, to keep itself, to your point, protected from the federal government. Uh, American American rights and and gun ownership are peas and carrots. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, that's why it's yeah. the Second Amendment. Yeah. You know, the game came after religion and, and freedom of spree, uh, speech and press. Yeah. Um, but uh, and 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 there's a lot of of uh, of uh, uh, people on the left that own weapons, and if they keep going down this road, uh, the lawmakers are going to run into a big problem. And it's not the NRA. NRA has nothing to do with it. It has to do with human rights, and just because they think a gun looks scary, uh, doesn't mean it, it, it's it should be taken taken away. Now I'll tell you and, where I am for a bit of a bit more control on guns. I think there should be some sort of um, ATF flag that goes off when a single owner has. 15, 10 to 15, 20 semi-auto rifles. Somebody needs to knock on that person's door and talk to them. This, this is all I'm saying. I'm not saying they shouldn't have a right to own them. I'm not saying that, you know, it should be illegal. Uh, I'm saying that if that there should be a register 
of ownership. And you, just like when you register to buy a car, right? The, Cal- the state of California knows that I own my car. They knows where I park it. Guns should be treated the same way as cars. The state of California should know where my guns are. And, and as far as I'm, I'm not a gun owner, but as far as I understand, it already works similarly that way. But when somebody has the I'm thinking of the Vegas shooter, when this guy bought his 12th gun, somebody should have knocked on his door. Right. Um, that's too much. Well, but the, the number of guns you own really has nothing to do. There's some people that they like to shoot different kinds of guns. They, they like to collect guns and 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 there's nothing wrong with there's the not. Gun and that's that's what I'm calling for the door knocking. Right. Because you get somebody to say, hey, we noticed that you just bought your 20th gun. You know, are you a certified collector or are you just stashing a bunch of high powered rifles and um, for I mean, here's here's one thing that's troubling about the Vegas shooter, and I did a lot of re- looking into it when it happened. There was no way this guy would have set off any psychological alarms beforehand. He was a nominal businessman. He owned his guns out, you know, fair and square. He bought them all fair and square. He was law abiding. He was a wealthy entrepreneur. He was a successful entrepreneur. He was a, a gambler. And so that's how he got comped his rooms as often as he did. There was nothing, no flags that this guy would have set off beforehand until he starts firing out the window. Uh, and so I'm not comfortable just saying that that is the way it is. I'm not comfortable with that. To me, no, that can't be just the way it is. And so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling for solutions. My current one yeah. that I'm throwing out there is somebody needs to knock on his door when they buy more than ten. But of course, we're, we're, just, I'm just searching for a solution. Yeah, well, and and my 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 uh, opposition to the the uh, registration part of it hmm. and the in the stuff is that uh, the government needs doesn't need to know that as far as I'm concerned. That's an, an uh, invasion of my personal privacy. And if they know that I have them here, what's to stop them from coming and confiscating them anytime they want? Because I can't bite the government. They win every time. Hmm. And I, you know, you're, you're going to knock on my door and, and tell me that I need to uh, drink 2% milk? Let me look in your refrigerator. Now, what difference do you draw between ownership of a car and ownership of a gun because that's the analogy that i've been trying to draw recently uh well ownership of the gun i mean i own guns and they're my in my safe Hmm. uh and i i take them out to the desert and i plink plink around and it's fun Hmm. Hmm. and a car um they you register because because they can they charge you that because they can charge you money and uh is there any reason for it to be registered? Not necessarily. Hmm. I agree with that. But the only reason that your car is registered is because they can charge money for it. Hmm. Really, truly. Hmm. I mean, it, it, may, it may go different. Now, you know, a, a, a vehicle is a weapon mm-hmm. by extension. Hmm. But um, uh, the only things that they that they can tax or they can... Uh, put fees on, they do, and they'll put serial numbers on everything they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, owning a car is not an, is not in the amendments. It's mm-hmm. not a right; it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Mm-hmm. So that's how they get around it. Second Amendment is a right. Mm-hmm. I have a right to bear arms. Period. Mm-hmm. And the, and and if you f- further read into it, is there's, there's nothing that the government can do to abridge that right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which means they can't stop me from buying ammo. They can't stop me from buying 
a clip that fits. Uh, they can't stop me from buying the weapon itself. But they're trying to make a case that because something happens, you know, bad at a school or what have you, and that's another thing that's, that makes me crazy. You know, after the Parkland shooting and all this other kind of stuff, you know, there's a big hullabaloo about, you know, bringing uh, safety officers and police into schools. Mm. And now they want to abolish the police and they want to pull all the schools out of the schools or the police out of the schools. <laughs> what sense is that? I mean, what is it, pal? Make up your make up your mind. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is the this is the whole when you when you stand against logic, this is where you end up. You end up saying uh, you end up saying, what, what was it? Oh, we need to stop shootings therefore also get rid of the police when you <laughs> when you abandon yeah. logic this is these are the type of claims you're capable of making where we need to keep right. people safe and we need to defund the police what right well what yeah, many minneapolis you know they they had a, a 40 percent uh reduction in their police force and now they're begging for people to come back and work for them and they gave put up another six million dollars in order to to hire these people back because the citizenry are they're getting killed they're getting murdered they're getting robbed they're getting burned and and uh i don't know whether you've seen this stuff recently down in in chinatown and stuff like this hmm. they got these thugs that are going around and, and pushing and killing uh asians right now you know they're just they're hooligans and um they're they're hurting people and i just don't understand the logic behind this by taking police off the street or restricting the police uh, in a, in a in an essence to where they just stand back and watch it burn. It's uh, you know it's it's so troubling. It's so troubling because I think I think we can rightly respond to this group uh, as as one would respond to a fifteen year old who insists that the that the um, walls of the house have become offensive. So this 15-year-old insists that we change the floor plan of the house, remove walls. We need to replace them with glass doors, and that way we're, we, we remove all of our hypocrisy. This is the 15-year-old claim. Well, as an adult who owns the house, I'm going to say that's a bad idea and it's not going to happen. And then that 15-year-old will make a bunch of noise, and that's where it stops. And so I'm part of the group, I think uh, I think our like guy named John McWhorter says, it's time for us reasonable people to stand and speak and say no to this woke idiocy. No, stop it. We aren't defunding the police. I'm from Compton. We don't need less police. We need more police. We need better police. We need more well-funded police. I tell you, some of the safest times that I experienced in Compton was when the sheriff would do their morning exercises through the neighborhoods. They would do their morning jogs in groups of 24 or 36 through up and down the streets of the neighborhoods. That's when the Compton was his absolute safest, when there was mm-hmm. a audible, visible, robust police presence, not the reverse. Yeah, exactly. And even in my neighborhood, too. Uh, and he's unfortunately, he's moved out. But he would bring his patrol car home and park it in front of the house. Mm. And that we were the safest street in town. Yep. Uh, because they just moved to the next street. And I live right next to Hawaiian Gardens, which isn't, you know, isn't, uh, uh, you know, a, a great place. Yep. Uh, they yep. have a lot of crime on a regular basis. But, um, you know, uh, what, what it's doing is victimizing the, the, the people that don't have the money mm-hmm. to protect themselves or stuff. I think it's the poor people that get 
affected a lot more. And with this, with this uh, gang member stuff, and you know them killing, killing their own neighbors and stuff, it makes no sense. And that's why, like when we had the riots in Watts and Compton and stuff like that, you know they were burning down their neighbors' businesses. Yep. They weren't burning down my business. Why are you picking on your own? Yep. That's your neighborhood. Do you have no pride in it, or what? what you just want a pair of Nikes? Yep. Uh, it it'd have been a lot cheaper if they said. You know, time out. How many want Nikes? How many want a free TV? And the government could have bought them for them and been done with it. Or did they just want to, you know, go wild? I, I don't understand it was, that. It was a little bit of, it was actually a mix of both. And so uh, there is, I, I can tell you that being black is the first thing you are allowed to be when you're black American. Uh, that's, they tell you that I, I knew I was black before I knew I was a boy. Uh, I knew I was black before I knew my, before I knew what my favorite toy characters were. Uh, that's one thing in our culture that, that is permeated and it's passed down and it's, it's kept and it's held, uh, and the spirit in which it was held, you know, this is what my grandparents would tell me is that because we have to stay connected to our history because it's so fraught and so bad it's you have to understand yourself as black first and this is the message that i got from my parents and so i'm from my parents my grandparents so that was the one of the components of the hostility that led to the riots uh is this idea that black people have never been treated right in this country brown people have never been treated right in this country and it's it's an anger that's intentionally held on fostered held on to fostered and passed along uh, so that's part of the seed but then the other side is to your point ignorance if you're upset at a system for mistreating you uh, you don't burn it to the ground you you look at the system you see what's good about it you see what's bad about it what we have in america is a is an amazing experiment of pluralism, of religious pluralism, of of uh, a separation of church and state based on a tripart government that's supposed to give us uh, a free market capitalist society that can also operate with a representative democracy. This is an amazing experience we, uh, experiment we have going on, and burning I, it to the ground is not a thoughtful response. Well, yeah, and they're burning the wrong stuff down. I mean. Are burning uh, any of it to the ground. They shouldn't have burning, gone. They shouldn't have gone to um, Newport Beach and burned that down either. They shouldn't have gone and burned anything down. Uh, well, definitely not your own neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and what you said, I, I, I'm going to pick up uh, on a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just made me think a second. When I was growing up, I didn't know I was white mm. until until somebody pointed it out to me. Mm. Because I've always treated everybody as everybody. Mm. I've never, I've never had issue. I, I've got, I've got black friends. I got Jewish. As a matter of fact, when I was going to school, we had some kids in in the Boy Scouts and whatever Cub Scouts anyway. They were from Jewish families, mm. and a lot of people shunned them. And I said, why? I mean, their Christmas lasts nine days. Mm. Uh, you know, they're nice people. <laughs> it's a pretty cool. Uh, deal. I don't. Yeah, you know, so they got Hanukkah and stuff, and I said that's kind of cool. You get nine Christmas, uh, but when I was a, a kid, I didn't really know the difference. You know, uh, racism is taught. Hmm. It's not. It's not anything. It's not anything that that is uh, natural. When you're in your in your crib, you don't think about that. Uh, uh, racism is 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 taught, 
and there's a there's a song actually a, a deal in South Pacific uh, when the the lieutenant was falling in love with the a Polynesian gal and they had a song about you know uh, you know about being carefully taught to how to hate and how to be prejudiced and stuff like this because people would not accept them uh, and and what have you and and it's a learned experience somebody has to teach them somebody has to tell them how to do that and I don't know who those people are because I don't think it's I don't think it's the the single mothers in Compton that are teaching their 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 kids to to hate I, I they're they're the ones who are trying to keep them alive so there's somebody out there there's somebody teaching them uh, that, that you know where the problem is and we have to find find those people and get them out of the equation mm-hmm. yeah, it's got to be learned I think it's got to be learned I think what we can do uh, for our culture is I think we need to re um, re-emphasize what the enlightenment values are, uh, what the secular values are that allow us to communicate with each other without hate. So as if, if you have in a room a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, and a Jew, and a Buddhist, and a Jain, and all and everything you can imagine, they're all in a room. They can, let them talk, let them discuss their ideas, uh, let them discuss their beliefs, but let it always be present from each one of them and to each one of them, a deep respect for the physical safety and well-being of every person in the room and their families. That's how we get along. If you believe that racism and, and hatred and or not, not hatred, if you believe that racism and patriarchy and naked power games against non-white people is the defining characteristic of this country, if you're part of that religion, so be it. I wish you physical safety. Uh, if you don't believe that, if you believe that it's it's the 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 immigrants and the, the Jews and the minorities and all these other and the Illuminati, whoever else, if you believe that they're all to blame, you believe that I wish you physical safety. And that's what I think we need. Um, because when you've got, you know, we're at the point now, what happened on January 6th in other contexts would have been an armed revolt. Uh, in other contexts that would have been hundreds of thousands of people marching to the Capitol in order to take the country back from the people who wrong, who stole it. Cause they believe that they really, really believe that. Uh, and so what we need now is a re-emphasis on the enlightenment values that allow people with different belief systems to be neighbors. And that's what I'm all about. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And uh, I was just going to say, too, in the, um, in the years that I've owned my own company, since 1985, I guess, um, I've probably employed uh, upwards of 30 people, I'm guessing, uh, or, or even more over time. Uh, and of that, I'm guessing maybe 10% were white. Most of the people I, I hired were either Asian, Hispanic, or black. And I didn't care. I was looking for the skill set. I was looking for the people that wanted to work. And, uh, I, you know, my, one of my best uh, uh, workers, unfortunately, he's, he, he, he's now got his own business, which is great. And we still communicate. He came over to my house the other day. I went to his, to his uh, daughter's Quinceanera, or what I don't know even how you pronounce it. Quinceanera. Uh, yeah, quinceanera, and uh, and uh, I didn't know anything about that, but I 
uh, you know, I went there to honor his child, and I uh, went to his his uh, uh, he renewed his vows, and and uh, uh, my buddy Jim and I were the only white people in the church uh, and stuff, and and you know we didn't care, we just were going there to see our friend because it's it's never been a a barrier or or even anything I think about as long as you're a good person. Now there are some deals to where um, I know from a cultural standpoint that some cultures, you know, stick to their own first. And I kind of get that to where if they had to choose between um, a Hispanic deal or me, that they're going to lean towards the Hispanic thing first. It's just a, a familiar thing. And I've, and I've got that. And it's, mm. and it's just, it's a cultural thing. And, and, and I can live with those kind of issues, but he's as sweet as a box of candy. I mean, he, he treats me like a brother. He calls me, you know, on my birthday and, and, uh, you know, we go out and have drinks from time to time, or we used to before this lockdown mm, was. Mm. And I never thought twice about it. And if we can get people to think about that, but it's almost like there's too many people out there with a chip on their shoulder. And I, and I don't get it. You know, it, it takes so much energy to be angry. It takes so much energy to be mad. It takes so much energy to hate. I don't understand that. Um, it can be, it can be, be uh, you know rearranged. It's like some of the, some of these criminals out there are very, very, very clever. Uh, you know, they you, you read these stories about you know folks breaking into a building and and going through a uh, you know the passage and opening up a wall and mm. and doing you know it, it took a lot of effort, a lot of energy. Well, what if they use that for good as opposed to bad? Mm. I don't get it. I, I, it's not that that's a great job, because eventually you're going to get caught. Eventually you're going to be in an orange suit somewhere. So it makes no sense to me. I just don't know what goes through their minds. But it's it's so much easier to be good than it is to be bad. I truly believe that. Well, I can I can actually attest to the reverse, uh, in that if you come up in a culture that celebrates criminality if you come up in a culture that expects you to do some criminality and even honors you for doing more then the easier path is the criminal path and so oh, for, well, sure. for any of us who are fortunate enough to have developed in a culture that rewards honest behavior it's exactly that it's fortune we're just fortunate uh, and so yeah. anybody who's who's a career criminal today uh, I would, I would assume, or I would, I would probably th first think that they are unfortunate to have had the role models and the examples that they had, uh, such that the decisions that they made seem like the most reasonable ones along that path. Uh, yeah, you you are who you hang with. Yeah, and and unfortunately, uh, now some people don't have a choice. They're in a in a neighborhood or they're in a situation to where uh, they have to join, and they have no means of getting out, yep. and they get kind of forced. It forces their hand into doing stuff. But, you know, if you hang around good people, it's like, I'll give you an analogy with sports. Um, I used to be a, an okay tennis player when I was in high school. I was on the junior varsity team. And you wouldn't know it because it's, it's short and it's, I've never been a slim Jim by any man, uh, uh, manner of meaning. But I would uh, uh, always try to play 
people that were better than me because mm. that's the only way I could get better. Mm. If I was the best and I kept beating everybody, what fun is that? I always wanted to exceed. I wanted to push forward. I wanted to do better. And the only way to do better is to make things harder. Mm. And so I would always try to find an opponent uh, or when we would have a match, uh, I would volunteer to play the, you know, the their the other team's best guy. Because, uh, you know, maybe it would make me better. And I turned out to be a pretty good racquetball player. Um, and um, uh, I used to beat all sorts of people that they didn't think I could beat them. Hmm. But I got better the more I practiced and the more I played. But the only, only way you can make yourself better is if you challenge yourself and you play against people that are better than you. Yeah, but there's also I can I can uh, testify to the unspeakable fear, uh, and by unspeakable I mean not only is it not spoken by the people who hold the fear, uh, but it's can't be spoken, can't be described to them as a fear. Otherwise, it will be seen as an offense. You will be offending them. But a lot of men from the hood, uh, and I'm a man from the hood, are afraid of trying to participate in the national and international economy. They don't think it's in, they don't they see it as as a waters too deep. And so when they look out at the Bezoses and the Musks, they don't see themselves in the same scale. Uh, and of course if you tell this to their face, they'll punch you. <laughs> you know, they'll say, oh, "I'm not scared of nothing," is what they'll say. Uh, but you seem but you're, you know, but the truth is that they, they would tell you that they're not scared of anything. But the truth is they're scared of financial literacy. They're scared of competing in the open market, capitalist market as it stands. They're frightened of it. They don't think they can do it. They don't think they so they so they participate in the economies that they have access to. That they that they do think they can participate in. They go, "Well, I can't sell shoes to Russians, but I can sell weed to, uh, you know, Khaleesi and them. Uh, I can do that. Uh, and so that's what that's what they do. And uh, those are the choices that they make. And you know, I've been on both sides uh, of this equation. That's why I know that it is an unspoken fear uh, for people who that I've seen that re resort to criminal and, and irresponsible lifestyles that they simply don't believe in themselves early enough to think that they can go out in the in the I would call the real world uh, and make something of themselves. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, a defense uh, mechanism mm -hmm. that's saying if you're if you're unsure of yourself, you don't think you can compete, or you don't think you have the necessities in order to do something like this. It's easier to get angry mm -hmm. than it is to try to learn, uh, and it's a knee jerk reaction. And and it's you know it's what too many people do on on all sides of the spectrum. I mean, even even you know. Poor white folks and what have you. I mean, there are people in Appalachia and stuff that they can't compete and stuff. So, you know, they do their thing. And, and uh, it's hard. And competing in competing in the economy in which you have successfully competed in. Uh, and, you know, I'm a testament to that. It's hard. It's really, really hard to do. Uh, and more people, more people than currently are emotionally and psychologically and mentally prepared to do it need to do it need to learn how to do it and and be less scared because it's possible it is hard to and and you know i would i'm grateful for your experience on this but it's my understanding that it is hard to compete as an entrepreneur in the open american economy but it's possible right sure absolutely they you know that's why we have we have a quality in our 
in in the capitalist society. I mean, that's what it was based on, mm. is you have the ability to fail, and mm. you have the ability to succeed. And you have the same ability as I do to, su- to succeed or fail. I mean, I'm not holding you back. Mm. Uh, now, if there are some issues out there, if there are some barriers, artificial barriers to success, that's a different story. But there's nothing to stop you from inventing the next app that will be worth a billion dollars. Mm. Nothing to stop you from it. Um, but, you know, I don't do apps. I, I, I guess I only download the free ones anyway. Um, but uh, it all, all depends on what your comfort zone is. Mm. I mean, but there's some people that, you know, I, I can do plumbing. I don't like it. I'll do electricity, uh, electrical work because I'm comfortable with it. And I developed a skill set to it. So, and I've got, I, there was a guy when I was living in Maryland, uh, he would uh, work on crews that build log cabins. And in the log cabin building business, um, it's not as uh, formal as a stick built building mm. where everything is already pre-cut. Eight foot long, you know, four foot wide, two foot, you know, all this other kind of stuff. Everything's square. Everything's square. Well, the log homes, you kind of have to look at it, and you have to take a chainsaw out, and you're going to make it fit. And this guy, he could make a set of stairs by looking at it, calculate out in his head the rise and the run, and take a skill saw out and cut the runners, and it would be perfect. Hmm. And I said, I, I said to him, I said, uh, Holly, how did you, how do you do this? I don't know. It's just my brain. He's a brilliant kid, hmm. and he and the problem, his only problem was he's always in and out of jail because he abused alcohol. Hmm. And so, if he didn't have that problem, he could be owning the business as opposed to working for it. Hmm. Uh, but the the kid had ulcer, and I used to give him as much work as I possibly could, and uh, and uh, and he always showed up for work hungover or not. Um, but, you know, there's other people that just don't want to show up or it, if it gets too hard. But then again, you know, if you've got a boring job or a job you don't like, I can understand, you know, not showing up. But if you've got a skill set and you can show it off. And, and I would give him nothing but accolades. And that's another thing, too. I don't think people um, admire people or give them, give them the accolades that they deserve that they don't compliment people and say, great job. Uh, how many times do people pat you on the back and say, you did a great job? It doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah. And I do it constantly because I always have the philosophy is that the only way that I'm going to be a success is if I help somebody else be a success. Hmm. That's my only way I can measure it. So if, uh, for instance, you know, you, you have to do it yourself. I can't make you be successful, but if I can help you get there, then I feel successful. Mm. If that makes any sense. Oh, it makes total sense. Makes total sense. I'm a I'm a walking example of of that you you live you lead that life uh, that you that you walk that principle. Right? You're not just talking. I can I'm testifying right now that you aren't just talking that you walk it. And when I was working with you, I was I knew I was mentored the whole time. Uh, and so a lot of jobs, my current job, to be absolutely honest, uh, 
I, I don't have mentorship a little bit, a little bit. I shouldn't say that. Um, my, my VP isn't very supportive. My direct boss, my manager is super supportive. So I shouldn't say that. So my direct boss is super supportive. Um, but my VP isn't very, very mentoring. Um, and the job I had at UCLA, I had some kind of leadership, but it was really more sink or swim there. Uh, but when I was working with you, I didn't feel like sinking was even a possibility. <laughs> I knew that if I showed up, work hard, that you were being straight with me and that I would and I got better. I got better working with you. I learned a lot about networking uh, that I wouldn't that I couldn't have known otherwise without that experience. Uh, so well, I'm, I'm grateful I, to that. Really, I am. And what I would, and what I was impressed with you is that you you go to the school sites at Linwood and whatever it is, and you would build a relationship with these people, which is exactly what I needed. I needed you to do, as opposed to just you know just doing the work was one thing, but uh, getting them to like and trust you and us as a company, you know, it, it was probably worth a lot more than what we did, quite mm. frankly. Hmm. And so uh, you know, there's a there's a lot to be said for that. And uh, my 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 most memorable mentor um, at 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 an, an adult age is when I first started to get into to, uh, technology and electronics and mm. stuff. And he was a, a sales guy, and uh, he ended up becoming my first sales manager. Um, and uh, he said, "Stan, it doesn't matter." what this stuff is. This could be a watch. It could be a washing machine. It could be uh, a modem. It could be a computer. It could be anything. If you can sell, you can learn the technology. But l most people don't know how to sell. Mm. They don't know how to be personal or personable. And he says, so don't worry about what technology you get into. And so that never, that never frightened me. So when I left him in that company and went on my own and went to go sell phones for GTE and stuff like this, I didn't even know what a PBX was. Hmm. I didn't even know what it was. Uh, and, and they explained to me it was a private branch exchange. I said, okay, great. What, what does it do? How does it do it? And I, and I became inquisitive. And I learned the technology. And along the way, I met people. And I said, I, I'm, I'm here to benefit you. I'm here to help you spend your money wisely. And that's always been one of my taglines. And so, uh, you know, from that end, it, it was easy. I mean, the best times I ever had working-wise was that st stretch at seven years or so when I was with General Telephone. Um, I, had, I had the world by the ass. I I couldn't have been happier. I was living in Palm Springs. I was playing golf. I was selling, making money. And uh, when my feet hit the hit the carpet, I was at work, hmm. and uh, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to get out there. Um, and so, you know, that's really kind of what what started it. And so, I just brought that philosophy to when I owned my own company, and how I wanted to treat my people. I wanted them to treat them like Chuck Webster treated me. Uh, and then uh, I, and the other thing I learned, General Telephone by, by another guy, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting, is that uh, they were always asking about, about um, 
uh, you know, uh, sales leads, and are you following up on how many clients you have going on, and blah, 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 and showing up to meetings and what have you. And, and uh, uh, he's, he said, Stan, um, if I call you, and it's not to invite you to play golf, there's a problem. And so my, with my performance or what have you. Hmm. So my goal was to only have him call me when he wanted to play golf. Hmm. And that's kind of the way it turned out. Uh, and so I did my work. I did, I did better. I was always 120% of everything. And, uh, you know, he'd always shake his head and stuff. We had a great relationship. And, and, and then I, I took the, the, the terminology of sales manager. A sales manager is an oxymoron. Because if you have to, if you have, if you have to manage salespeople, they're not salespeople. Mm. Salespeople are self-motivated, self-directed by definition. Mm. And so, you know, all these people that had to, uh, I'll tell you another little story. I got a lot more stories and, and maybe we can continue this in a different, different podcast because we're not getting close to two hours. But the, uh, um, we, they changed our format a little bit and I had to drive from Palm Springs to Pomona, uh, to go to meetings and stuff. And it was a little bit of a hike. Hmm. So anyway, uh, they got a new sales manager in over everybody and, uh, uh, they sat everybody down and they said, okay, uh, how many sales, uh, leads do you have? How many, how many contracts are you working on? And, you know, Betty would say, well, I'm, I, I've got, you know, five in the pipeline. He says, that's good, but you could probably get more. And uh, Bob over there would say, oh, well, I got 12 that I'm working on that, you know, that look, look pretty good. He says, okay, well, that's great. You know, I have a lot of paper on the street. And he got, got around the room to me. Mm. And he said, uh, so how many proposals do you have, have out there right now? And I said, none. And he looked at me. He says, how come? He says, because everybody bought something. Hmm. <laughs> nice right and so to me they said well what's your percentage of sale to me it's, it was either zero percent or a hundred percent if anything in between meant nothing it's like going on a, on a date you know what's the percentage that she's going to like me mm. i don't i don't know you know either it's going to be a hundred percent it's going to be zero or you better make it that way pretty quick and not waste your time and that was the thing is i wouldn't waste my time on a 20 percent sale it wasn't worth my time. I'd rather go to the ones I could close. And so it's all the way you, you, you look at things. Um, but like I say, I've got a bunch of, bunch of stories with regard to, you know, what I went through with regard to learning how to sell and learning technology and, and how to uh, navigate on my own because I was out in lizards and horny toads out in Palm Desert. Mm -hmm. I, I moved out there when uh, at uh, uh, Bob Hope Drive and Country Club. And it was just desert and horny toads. And there was nothing around and just me. My my supervisor was an hour drive away. So you would have been uh, part of the culture that helped build that area up then? Oh, absolutely. I sold phone systems to most of the country's country clubs down there. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Marriott, uh, all of the Sunrise uh, golf courses out there, Sunrise Corporation golf courses, um, Ironwood Country Club, I mean, uh, El Dorado Country Club, uh, all sorts of stuff. And I, I actually met a lot of very interesting people. I sold uh, Frank Sinatra a phone system. Oh, nice. 
I sold the, uh, um, oh, uh, I can't think of her name right there. gal that makes pie, Sarah Lee. I sold Sarah Lee her pie, her, her phone system, in, in these private country clubs and stuff. Um, and I, I got into places where most people could never get in. And I had my magic card there, my GTE badge, and I could get in through any front gate anywhere in Palm Springs. And it was just bitching. It was, like I say, I had a hell of a great time out there. I just really enjoyed that altogether. What would you say, if you if you had to boil down the the ethos and the logos of that time, of that region, that was held by more than just you, but held by the people there that allowed that that culture to thrive? What would you say those ideas were? And you mean talk about the customers, the people that uh, I dealt with? Yeah, the people you dealt with, the region, the company, just any any positive thing that you picked up from that time where you say this is the thing that people need to carry with them to succeed. Well, uh, uh, everybody I met out there, it, it, you know, either uber wealthy or semi wealthy. Hmm. Uh, I never met a, 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 a mad or evil or, or, or un... Um, Unthankful person. Hmm. They were all nice people. And I would have customers invite me to go play golf courses that I could never get in because they were private clubs. They would call me up and say, hey, Stan, you want to play golf at Ironwood Country Club? I said, sure. Uh, and and I never, I never took one customer out to lunch in my entire time I was there. Hmm. I never had, my expense account was nothing. And... Um, and I had an expense account for it. I could have done it if I wanted to. And it was just the thing is they just wanted to, they wanted to get their phones. And they wanted to have their business run. And then everything else was after that. And I, I stood by what I, what I told them. And I went through the, the sale all the way to the end and made sure they were happy. And then they would recommend me to somebody else. And so I got a lot of my leads from that end from the customers. And then the other group I, I had... Uh, were in the, the the gals in the central office, and it was at the time during divestiture when the phone companies deregulated, and because uh, when I first got in there, you still had to lease your phone from the phone company. Hmm. There there were no jacks; you couldn't plug a phone in a jack. They were all hardwired, and you probably don't remember back that that far, and so you couldn't have a private phone. Hmm. And and um, so then they started selling private phone systems and. And the phone company had to allow people to do that. So um, what was happening is that these customers would uh, call the central office and they'd say, okay, I understand that I either can or I have to buy my phones. Uh, especially, they were all business phones. Mm. And so the people, the girls in the central office, they had no, no clue really what was going on because they weren't re really brought into the fray. So I went to the central office, and I went in with a box of donuts once a week, and I talked to the gals, and they flooded me with leads because hmm. they they've been dealing with Sarah Lee, let's say, you know, uh, for years, 20, 30 years, while she'd been living there, uh, and uh, some of the, uh, of the other celebrities that you know were there, uh, and just businesses and what have you. So, because they would be calling the central office looking for information, and I was willing to to uh, go out and talk to them. 
And so and that's where my success, my, my success was basically personal related. Mm. I mean, if it wasn't for my personality and, and how I treated people, uh, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And I just took all that experience and tried to share it, tried to pay it forward. Um, and really that's, that's where, where I'm, where I'm at. And I'm very, I'm very happy with the way things turned out. I think you've done it. Uh, I am, I'm a testament to that. Uh, I carry your example and I carry your, your passion for honorable face to face, just that human touch. Uh, and it's, it's so genuine. It's so authentic. And I carry it to the day. I, I think you've been a great example. I appreciate it. And we will, we'll do it again. <laughs> How does that sound? Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, what, what is happening is that you're bringing up a lot of memories that I have that I'd, I'd like to share. Uh, and I've got another buddy, uh, that I think I may mention to you that, that I had worked with in the, uh, telecommunications business that says, Pretty much the same philosophy as I do, and he's got stories as well. And, and there's a lot of insight with regard. And he right now he's he's uh, oh, I'm going to say he's 60, 68 uh, now or something like this, and he's still teaching. Hmm. He teaches math teaches mathematics in San Diego, um, and because he loves teaching and he's good at it. And uh, and we've been in a, in business partnerships and in and out on on different occasions and stuff. Just a real nice fella. But um, you know, he's got the same same philosophy on on that. But there's all all sorts of stuff that could be shared that that uh, insights and and what have you on 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 personal things that people could learn. I would hope. Uh, and if they don't have the skill sets, you know, sometimes you don't need the skill sets. Sometimes you just need the right personality. You just need the right attitude. I'm with it. I'm with it. Let's let this be, hopefully it can be the first of many. It's my pleasure catching up, Stan. And like I said, I'm always learning from you. Uh, every time every time I talk to you, I'm learning from you and I'm getting better. So it's my pleasure. Good. Well, I, I, I appreciate your, your, your confidence and I thank you for your compliment. And uh, uh, so I hope the, this conversation today works out for you on your podcast. And I'm interested to see how you, I'm sure there's a lot of things. You could probably make two of them out of this. Huh. you know, cutting it up in, in different directions. But I have no problems talking about any any kind of topics, um, uh, whether it, it even be political or or, or or religious and stuff like this, because I don't I don't hold a grudge, nor do I have have two. I'm not I'm not um, uh, fanatic in any direction. Mm. I have my I have my beliefs. I have my thoughts. You know, I'm I am a conservative. I'm Probably more of a libertarian than anything else, because I, I believe in less government, not more government. Hmm. But that's just my my philosophy. But you know, I, I'm a live and let live uh, kind of fella. And you're reasonable. Uh, we've got so many people in our culture that have lost sight of being reasonable. They think they think just that believing to one extreme or another and believing heartily and believing mightily makes you reasonable. That's not what reasonable means. Reason <laughs> reasonable well, means you can believe what you believe and understand what someone else believes that's different than you. Yeah, and it's sad because I've got friends uh, that for the past four years I had very few conversations with hmm. and, and, and things I couldn't bring up. Um, and even if they brought the subject up, I wouldn't talk about it. Because I didn't want to lose the friendship because they didn't have the, 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 the I don't want to say the character, 
because they all had character they wouldn't be my friends. But they didn't have the ability to separate some of this emotional stuff over mm. the you know, over the you know the orange man bad stuff. Mm. And mm. Uh, and so it, it was it's been a difficult four years. It really has been. And so I don't push it on anybody. And uh, and if anybody has a uh, especially if I I get a an idea that they're you know radical in uh, in that negative stuff against it, I just don't even bring it up. Mm. I I can deal without it. And mm. and if and sometimes they'll say, well, why don't you want to talk about it, Stan? And I would tell them, I said, I don't want to lose a friend. Mm. You know, it ain't worth it. That conversation doesn't need to happen. Yeah, I lost a. I have a cousin who was uh, following me around on Facebook and he would always be the first to comment negatively against everything I said. And I said, look, uh, you know, we can believe differently. You know, you're my cousin. I love you, but please don't follow me around Facebook and just just be the first to put a negative comment on everything I post. And he responded with, I'll do you one better. And he defriended me and and blocked me. you know, I'm I'm of the belief that's my little chihuahua barking at anything that walks by. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm of, of the belief that it's our it's our differences in belief. It's our plethora of widely held, deeply held religious sectarian uh, beliefs and our ability to live together that makes us a strong culture. Uh, it's the fact that I can be a, a practicing Muslim and still be totally friendly with my practicing Christian neighbors. I mean, in, in cultures before this one, that was almost unheard of children, Muslim children playing with Christian children. This is, what is that? They can't even do that thing in a lot of cultures before this one. And so we've got, we've got an amazing opportunity to bridge gaps. And I feel like this, this tumultuous time we're in is a test of our ability to bridge. I do think we'll come through, but I think it's going to be rough. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Very good. Great. Well, thank you for doing it, Stan. Uh, I'm so appreciative and so grateful and we'll do it again. Okay. We'll be in touch. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks.